which we'll sing in just a few moments as the conclusion of our lesson, as a hymn of encouragement or a hymn of invitation. Upon so marking that, may we take note of our continuing study on the Lord's Day morning hour of that beautiful overview of the New Testament, the richest, finest, most powerful document ever given to the human family, that document that indeed contains the precious words that lead into everlasting life. Is it thus not any wonder that the Apostle Paul admonished Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? Ever desirous should we be, as Timothy was admonished, to give diligence to a careful analysis and study of the Word of God. We began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning in which it should be our attempt to overview all of the 27 books of the New Testament. And in the course of that overview, to appreciate at least in a basic way the themes and major lessons that may be extracted and drawn from each one. That should be of great aid to you and me when we are in need of a passage or a text or a verse or even a deeper understanding of what that particular book strives to set forth. We looked in particular at the first five books of the New Testament then, the four gospel accounts that testify of the greatest life ever lived, the only perfect life ever to have been lived upon this planet, the very life of our Lord and all that He taught, the grandeur of the kingdom, the power of His perfection, the greatness of His action, the marvelous wonder of His divinity and deity set forth for all humanity to appreciate. Finally, we notice in the book of Acts, following His resurrection, the greatness of that church that was born out of the grandeur of His being, of the promises that He set forth. For did He not say in Mark 9 verse 1 that there be some standing here who shall not taste of death till they see this kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom came with power in the second chapter of Acts. The Holy Spirit baptized those apostles. Peter and the eleven stood up and preached the first gospel sermon and the church was born and she hasn't died since. You and I are blessed today to continue to be members of that marvelous and wonderful body, the only body that has the hope of eternal home in heaven, Ephesians 5.23. Thus, as we continue onward in that journey, we saw the explosive growth of that church in Acts. What would necessarily come next? Today, we start with the book of Romans and continue onward from there in the New Testament. As we come to these divisions, where have we arrived? The four gospel accounts were the first division of the New Testament. The book of Acts was the book of history. It was the second division. Today, Romans begins division 3, 21 books, Romans through Jude. These are called the epistles. Many of them written by Paul, a few of them were not. In our study of them, we shall find ever-present practical advice to help us daily live for Christ, to live for God, to eschew that which is evil, cling to that which is good, and ever entertain in ourselves the marvelous reality of all that Christ died that we might have. Without further discussion thus of that introduction, let's turn our attention to the Roman letter. In 16 majestic chapters, we have the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It was the imperial city the capital of the Roman Empire in the ancient day, its power and majesty was known worldwide, of course. Blessed it was indeed that though have a congregation of the body of our Lord. A congregation of the church of Christ was in the city of Rome. 
As the book of Acts closed, Paul ultimately arrived there after the shipwreck scene of chapter 27. He was conveyed safely to that grand city in chapter 28, and for two years he was held in imprisonment in that place. This congregation was born, and we find on the marvelous occasion of the writing of the Roman letter some impressive and powerful things that they needed to know. Let's, for the next few moments, hit some of the high points of the book of Romans. The key problem that seems to have been difficult for that congregation was this. It was made up of those who formerly had been Jews and those who formerly had been Gentiles. In the nature of that distinction, though, was the very problem. They needed to be bonded together as one family of God, not considering the distinctions and separations that formerly had marked their way, but to be born together in brotherly love and powerful recognition of what they ought to be in light of what Christ had done for them. And so it was in Romans 10 verse 12, Paul said, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. He pointed out to them, Brethren, you should be one in Christ, and these distinctions that formerly were yours are no longer pertinent and are no longer materially important. He thus begins in chapter 1. And the key passage that sets the tone for everything to follow in this book is the one that Brother Jason read just a few moments earlier. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. With that thought stated, it will be the key that will unlock every difficult passage following in the book of Romans. Starting thus, after that in chapter 1. Paul's first arguments that will consume the first three chapters are these. All are in need of the gospel. First, the Gentiles need it. In chapter 1, verses 20 and following, Paul lists a number of things of which the Gentiles were guilty. They were lost, undone, without a Savior, and hence were in need of the gospel. In verse 25, "...who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." These Gentiles didn't pay homage to the Creator, but they worshiped what the Creator had made. And as such, they were guilty of sin, and hence in need of the gospel. For it again is God's only power to save." Seven verses later in chapter, in chapter 1 verse 32, he even notes that after a listing of various sins, including murder, jealousy, envy, various evils such as disobedience to parents, he said these things are worthy of death. A very blunt and powerful statement to be sure, chronicling the great need of the Gentiles for the gospel. Chapter 2 verse 1 opens, however, the Jews also need the gospel not just the Gentiles, for the opening argument of that chapter. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou doest the same things. Many of those same sins of which the Gentiles were guilty, the Jews were also guilty, and hence they too needed a Savior, and they needed the gospel. In verse number 6, God indeed will render to every man according to his deeds. As that chapter marches forward, the Jews are powerfully affirmed and proved to that they too were in need of the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A crescendo was reached in chapter 3 where Paul summarizes briefly in verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. Thirteen verses later, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The Jews need the gospel, and so too do the Gentiles. All have come short of God's glory. Thus, as that chapter closes, the greatness and power of the wonder that would be faith in Christ and the propitiation of sins that He made for us. Chapter 4. A deeper section of discussion ensues in which Paul now draws to our consideration and to that of the ancient church in Rome the powerful reality of, again, why it could be that God's system of salvation involved a system of obedient faith. That's still something the world has a hard time of understanding, isn't it? So many want to claim faith, but obedience isn't important. Paul argued powerfully that God's means of salvation involves a system of obedient faith. And the argument he uses is a masterpiece. He uses the example of Abraham. The Jews, of course, looked highly to Abraham. He was the father of the Jewish nation. However, God argued this way. Abraham was saved by a system of obedient faith prior to his circumcision and prior to the law of Moses ever being given. That statement, in fact, from which Paul quotes is Genesis 15, 6. Circumcision wasn't established until Genesis 17, two chapters later. And yet God said, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. His argument thus to the ancient church in Rome, if God could save Abraham without the law and without circumcision, can he not today save Gentiles and ask them or invite them into his body without circumcision and with no recourse to the law of Moses? His whole argument truly dumbfounded the Jews. They had no answer to give. And so in chapter 5, that matter of obedient faith is highlighted in verse 1 for you and me still today. When you and I know, therefore we are justified by faith. The cardinal doctrine of the entire New Testament is justification by a system of obedient faith. No wonder then in verses 6 through 10, we read in chapter 5, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were reconciled to God, we were reconciled by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The glorious power of what Paul held in store for the church in Rome. It certainly is no wonder that that free gift that Jesus gave, Romans 5 verse 15, is a free gift that redounds not unto death, but unto life. Chapter 6 begins then with a deeper description of that obedient faith. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The person who has been baptized into Christ does not purposefully live a life of habitual sin, such as incommensurate with all that the gospel has in store. But rather, we know that when we were buried in baptism with Christ, we were raised to walk in newness of life, and that obedience and its great reward is held out for us, beginning in verse 16 of Romans 6. Recall with me the argument Paul makes. He begins with this rhetorical question, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? 
But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. The Roman brethren became servants of righteousness when they obeyed the form of doctrine that had been delivered them. Nothing has changed today either. When you and I obey humbly and submissively that which we have been commanded by the Lord Christ Jesus, we too will leave off the old man of sin and become that individual who is indeed a servant of righteousness. That beautiful promise of verse 23 is then ours. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 7, Paul makes note of an issue that still no doubt rests upon all of our minds today. That civil war that raged within him in which he well appreciated. He often found himself doing that which he did not wish to do. And he found himself not doing that which he knew he ought to do. Having all of us found ourselves in that circumstance. Thus Paul could say in verse 4, that he himself, in regard all to the old law, you are dead to the law that you might be married to Christ. You and I are indeed the very bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. You and I as Christians are the bride, and we should be ever faithful to him and to his name. That leads us to see then that when we fail him, the same question and exclamation of verse 24 perhaps is ours. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thankfully, the answer is two verses later. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Oh, when we walk faithfully by the commandments of the Lord, recognizing the cleansing power of His blood, there is no condemnation for us. Verses 2 and 3 go on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free from the law of sin and death. That should be a buoyant theme that should aid you and me each and every day. For think of all the promises that Romans 8 hold out for us. You and I are those that have the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 verse 9. You and I are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God, Romans 8, 14 to 16. And is it not still true? I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Verse 18. As that chapter reaches its conclusion, beginning in verse 35, think of the boundless words that are stated there in promise to us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if some person like a ruler or a king or some potentate were able to separate you and me from Jesus? Paul asked the question, now listen to his answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, we are killed all the day long for thy sake. Finally, in verse 37, he gives his answer. As he states that answer, he puts it in words like this. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it not a wonderful and exciting thing to see that nothing other than we ourselves, by our own choice, can separate us from Christ's love? If we neglect Him and ignore Him and choose to do that which is different than His commandment, we will separate ourselves from all that He has to offer. 
but no other person can force us apart from him. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul again revisits the matter of the deepness of the nature of the church. That deepness seen in language like this. Again, the Jews had difficulty understanding how God could welcome the Gentiles who had never been God's chosen people. His argument, Paul's, proceeds like this. He says in chapter 9, verse 32, the Jews sought righteousness by works and not by faith. That would not be acceptable. And so Paul's great cry in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And isn't that still the problem of multiplied thousands upon the earth today? They have a degree of religious zeal, but it's misdirected, not following the commandments of the nature of the Christ. And so it is in chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And may we never forget the ultimate fact of the Word of God and its source for faith in all ways that it's found. In chapter 11, those Gentiles were grafted in as if it were a wild olive branch or a wild olive vine. And that chapter closes with a great description, an exaltation, if you will, of God. What means that then for us? Chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Day by day, you and I should be living examples and living sacrifices for the testimony of the gospel. As that chapter proceeds, note the practicality. We rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep, verse 15. As much as is possible, we live peacefully with all men, verse 18. And perhaps the exaltation of verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. As chapter 13, that division proceeds for us. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And so it is, we're admonished to owe no man anything but to love one another. Romans 13, 8. As we strive thus to walk honestly in the day, not following drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, envy, and strife, we seek thus to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. As one mentions practicality, could there be anything more practical than chapter 14 and 15? What about weak brethren, a new convert to Christ, or another individual who has not matured as one might desire? How should that person be treated? Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Romans 14.1 The reason, of course, being that everyone shall give account of himself to God. Romans 14.12 And in so doing, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14.23 All of that helps us see we must be solidly encouraged in mind, knowledgeable of that which God would have us to appreciate. And so it is in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, we ought not to please ourselves, but rather should seek to please those that would be our others. The hope that is thus placed in us, Romans 15, 13, is a hope from God Himself to those that believe. 
And in a marvelous fashion, the curtain closes on that chapter. In a marvelous fashion, in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. You and I are a part of an ancient organization that stretches back to Acts, the second chapter, the beautiful occasion on which our church, it was itself initiated and established. With this great idea, no doubt, the brethren in Rome were encouraged to be a united family of God, not distinguishing the parts of Jew versus Gentile, but that there's no distinction between them. With that said, that brings us to the first Corinthian letter. Again, in 16 scintillating chapters, the Apostle Paul addresses the church in Corinth. And if we ever needed a reminder that churches can have problems, no doubt this book should serve as that reminder. The church in Corinth was beset by difficulties and problems. There were issues abounding, and they had even written Paul a letter asking him questions whereby his answers could aid them in the addressing of those very problems. Just note a few of these problems with me. In chapters 1 to 4, the church was divided. They, in fact, were striving to follow after men and not after Christ. Paul reprimanded them sternly for such. In chapter 5, there was open fornication in the church, and they had not withdrawn fellowship. They had not, in fact, reprimanded that person at all. In chapter 6, they were proceeding to courts of law to have their disputes settled. In chapter 7, they had questions about divorce and remarriage. Aren't those still pertinent questions even today? In chapters 8, 9, and 10, issues about partaking of meats that had been offered to idols. In chapter 11, the nature of the Lord's Supper, its observance and how they were abusing and corrupting the very observance of that marvelous memorial. In chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts and how they were regulated. How should they be employed to the greatness of God's kingdom? The Corinthians did not understand. In chapter 15, what about the resurrection? What kind of body will we have? The Corinthians wanted to know, and Paul gave them an answer. In chapter 16, as we reach the end of that book, again we see other issues about the nature of the collection. May we revisit somewhat more interestingly a few issues and again note some high points of that interesting book. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, we have a passage that redounds to this day in great power and forcefulness. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. No greater text to squelch division than that one. We should speak, think, and say the same things religiously. For there is only one gospel. There's only one faith, Ephesians 4 verse 5. As he continues on, he quickly makes note of the centrality of Jesus. Paul didn't die for you. Peter didn't die for you. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we might well remember this. Speaking of the cross of Christ, as that cross and its statement was made, we note these particular statements. Beginning in verse 17, Christ said, Be not to baptize, but to, preach, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The Corinthians needed reminding of how important the cross of Christ was. And so it was in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, 
when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was a very learned man, eloquent in many ways, and yet when he stood in the pulpit in Corinth, the only message worthy of being preached was the gospel. Brethren, nothing has changed. Those who would stand in pulpits and preach a social gospel from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times are preaching that which ought never to be preached from a pulpit. Only the gospel of Christ can lead men and women to salvation. And when other things are preached from the pulpit, no wonder men aren't saved. No wonder folks one by one are marching toward an eternity unprepared to meet God in judgment. Thus, in chapter 3, Paul sternly rebukes the Corinthians. You have not matured, or you'd know better than to follow after men. Paul, in fact, says, I wish that I could speak to you as unto spiritual, but I can't, for you're yet carnal. You have not grown and matured as you should, verses 1 through 3. He did make note in verses 9 and 10 about the fact that he had planted and Apollos watered, but is it not God that gives the increase? And so it is that in chapter 4, we appreciate the fact in verse 6, never go beyond what's written. Human presumption and human speculation are worthless. You and I are not God. We must ever abide within the boundaries of what His Word contains. And that's the same admonition that Paul gave the Corinthians. And so it is in chapter 5. He now gives specific instructions. What about that man that was taken in adultery, living with his father's wife? You deliver such an one to Satan. You withdraw fellowship, and in such a manner, hopefully he will come to his better senses and appreciate the nature of his need for repentance. In chapter 6, what about going to courts of law, one with another, to settle these disputes? Verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Shall we not rather be able thus to take care of the matters ourselves? Chapter 7, Divorce and Remarriage. Verse number 2 perhaps highlights such great need that still remains in our world today. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. God does not sanction living together, other kinds of arrangements, arrangements whereby free sex can be enjoyed only within the confines of the beauty of the marriage described in the Holy Word. And so it is in chapters 8 through 10, again, meat offered to idols. Paul very quickly stated in verse 4 of chapter 8, an idol is nothing in the world. There is no God but one. And in chapter 10, verse 26, the fullness belongs to the Lord of the earth and all the greatness thereof. Paul needed them to know there is but one God. But in the consideration of others, might, one might need to take care not to put a stumbling block before the faith of those that were weak. When he arrived at chapter 11 and he described the Lord's Supper, he hearkened in their mind back to the scenes of the night prior to our Lord's crucifixion, explaining to them the elements of the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. This do in remembrance of me. In fact, he even warned them that to take of it unworthily would in fact bring on the very damnation of God. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 29 and 30. As that chapter closes and the last few chapters commence, we're reminded of the greatness of love in chapter 13. 
In fact, though Paul admonished them to properly use and to regulate those spiritual gifts, he quickly pointed out that the day was coming, all of them would pass away, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. And it's in that regard and position that he said, a more excellent way is now before you, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. That more excellent way was the way of love. The pathway in which our love for the Scriptures and our love for Christ within the confines friendly of His Word will lead to all things appreciated in regard to faithfulness and truthfulness with Him. In chapter 15, that matter of the resurrection, Paul argues so powerfully that there is to be a resurrection. Just as surely as the Lord was resurrected, so too shall every one of us be. For in this life only, if we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. Verse 19 of that chapter. And so it is that great crescendo of happiness in verses 55 to 58. We can well understand that death is swallowed up in victory. Can you and I not all look forward to that occasion? Indeed, for that's the great hope laid before us. And the book closes in chapter 16, admonishing us to lay by as we've been prospered and to give as God has so bountifully and richly blessed us physically. With the closing of the first Corinthian letter, can we not appreciate again the fact that that was a church in trouble? They had problems. Paul's letter was stern and to the point, and one can only wonder how did they receive that letter? Would it drive them further from the truth? Would they throw up their hands and quit? The second Corinthian letter gives us that example, and it also gives us that answer. Thus, let's also look at the second Corinthian letter written by the same man, namely Paul, to the same congregation, namely Corinth. Paul had a great misgiving as to how the Corinthian church would hear that letter, the first Corinthian letter. Oh, how his heart rejoiced. When Titus brought him word that they had not only received it kindly, but they had put into practice what he had admonished, and they had brought themselves into clarity before God. They had repented. Let's thus shed some light on the second Corinthian letter by noting the positiveness and the beauty to be found within it. Indeed, God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Even as Paul could say he had been under the sentence of death, 2 Corinthians 1, 9, nonetheless God had been with him, and he had understood and felt the comfort of the great God of heaven. Today, when our heart aches, perhaps at the loss of a loved one or another catastrophe in life, God is the God of all comfort. Not only comfort, but victory, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. He, in fact, puts it in language like this. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. Whereas that first Corinthian letter had been stern and to the point, this one was encouraging. You and I are victorious in Jesus. For, in fact, isn't it still true that our sufficiency is of God? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. And the overwhelming, surpassing beauty of the New Testament compared to the Old. That maybe leads us to see in chapters 4 and 5 how that you and I are taught and admonished day by day to let the life of Jesus manifest itself in us as we strive to do that which He has commanded. Paul puts it in words like this. 
Though Satan is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, you and I, as though living in earthen vessels, verse 7, are those which the following description should apply. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. When others see me and you, do they see Jesus? Are they given at least a brief glimpse of what the life of the Savior may have been like? In chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Who do you live for? Do you live for yourself, or do you live for the one that died for you? Paul says, by all right, that should be descriptive of all of our lives as Christians, to live for Him. And in so doing, that means we shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, chapter 6, verse 14, but rather separate from them, be dedicated to God in cleansing power, chapter 7, verse 1. And in so doing, Paul heaped a great compliment upon the church in Corinth. For in chapter 7, verse 11, he complimented them for repenting of the various sins mentioned in the first Corinthian book and that they had made things right. That gives us hope that when there's problems in a church today, it can be made right, it can follow the plan of God, and again come into fellowship with the great God of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, we have one of the most poetic verses of all. A verse that helps us see the reason for why living for Jesus is so important. Paul puts it in language like this. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Don't you and I wish to be there and in that place? For in chapter 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The richness and greatness of Jesus in his example is pictured to us in chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Oh, what the Lord did for you and me. He left the majesty and the beauty of heaven to come to this land where he never even owned a home, this land where he was spat upon, ridiculed, insulted, and betrayed, finally crucified. And he did all of that so that you and I could be made rich. Not rich physically, but rich spiritually. And so in chapter 8, verse 5, just as they of Paul's day gave themselves to the Lord, you and I must do the same. A half-hearted religion is no religion for Christ at all. And so it is in chapter 9 that when we give as we've been prospered, we must do it cheerfully, not grudgingly, but rather recognizing that it is to bring about God's work upon earth. As the book leads us to chapter 10, Paul complimented the fact that you and I are involved in war. I know that we prayed earlier about the state of affairs between Georgia and Russia, how that, that physical warfare may be so terrible and so awful. But may we never forget that day by day all of us are involved in spiritual warfare. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty toward God to the pulling down of strongholds in which even every thought is brought into captivity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. 
Thus you and I must fight and battle against Satan and all those that would be his henchmen. For in fact, if we fall into their army, we shall find ourselves eternally regretful of that state of affairs. In 2 Corinthians 11, we are warned about those that would try to cause us to come aside from Jesus and the simplicity that's in the gospel. Verse 3, For even in, we learn the angels of the devil can transform themselves into what may appear to be light. Oh, how we must test the spirits and not be led astray by false doctrine and falsity of any form. In chapter 12, Paul defended his own apostleship. There were those in Corinth who questioned whether or not he had the right to give them instruction. Paul spoke about one caught up into the third heaven. One who had in fact been gloriously blessed to be in the sublime presence of heaven itself. Paul referred to himself. And though he was in fact one who had a thorn in the flesh for which he'd prayed three times for its removal, God had said, My grace is sufficient for thee. Verses 7 through 9. And so it is in chapter 13. We are reminded perhaps of that great responsibility that is mine and yours. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. When we recognize that examination, it leads us to the closing benediction of that book. The very last verse, in fact, verse 14, where all members of the Godhead are mentioned. There is the greatness of the communion of the Holy Spirit, the wonderful love of God, and the great recognition of Jesus Christ himself. With that, the curtain falls on the Second Corinthian letter. What a bo good joy it is for us to think of how they received the First Corinthian letter and brought themselves into right relationship with God by repenting. With that overview of three books this morning, the books of Romans and First and Second Corinthians, we come to a point of asking ourselves, time and again we've seen how that the gospel is the central feature in the New Testament. To the Romans, it is God's power to save. To the Corinthians, they were called back to that one faith in it, for without it, they too were lost. What about your life and mine this very morning? Are you a faithful member of the church of our Lord that is based upon the gospel? Does the gospel describe your life in as much as it's an open testimony of all that should be yours and mine? If you have never obeyed and render obedience to that gospel, let today be the day. For just as they in Rome were admonished that that gospel is God's power to save, it's still God's power to save. If you need to respond publicly to it today, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, taught in Romans 8, verses 13 and 14. Repent of your sins, taught also in the Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, as the only begotten Son of God, Romans 10, verse number 12 and 13. And finally, be baptized, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. When you obey from the heart that form of doctrine, you too will become a servant of righteousness and put aside the old man of sin. If you have strayed away, though, from the faith, come back to that first love. Just as they in Corinth were admonished, you can do the same, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. If we could help you in either of those ways today, we'd be happy. We'd be overjoyed. But we need you to let us know in what way we could help you. Would you not do that if you would while together we stand and while we sing?